one of the family. The family. Dogs are a part of it and at the very heart of it. Nikki Campbell explores this wonderful world with the help of special guests and some other family members. Welcome to One of the Family. This episode, News Hounds and Nose Hounds. The News Hounds, journalist, legend, Kay Burley from Sky News, who takes no nonsense. So people say, can you put, if they come to the house and I don't know them, and say, can you put the dog away? It's like, of course I can, no problem. But you're never coming back to my house ever again. (laughs) And another News Hound, the great political journalist and broadcaster Ian Dale from LBC, a man who gets right to the heart of it. And so do his dogs. And he was just signalling to me, I know there's something wrong and I want to try and help you. And I thought, that, I mean, it was just one of those special moments. So many of those on one of the family. And what a story this is, as we say in the newsroom. Sniffer dogs, medical detection dogs, they can smell our disease and predict seizures. It's quite incredible how these dogs are able to do it in a situation where us humans are completely in the dark. Literally. No idea it's going to happen. Those are the nose hounds. Some wonderful tails and beautiful flappy ears. Right, what a story this is. What a story this is. I've written a one of the family news theme, especially for the occasion. And because one of the family... One of the family. Yeah, is a newsreader, Tina Ritchie. So good they named her twice. Stand by, everybody. Studio Live. Coming up, Kay Burley's canine kidnap horror. It was Hurley Burley for Sky's Kay, but sky's the limit when she came to pay. Ian Dale on the dogs in his life and Dr Claire Guest on the dogs saving ours. But first, the headlines. Right, here are the headlines. Kay Burley had her dog stolen. The police did nothing... And she had to pay a ransom. So I, the baby was still quite small. Um, being an Irish setter, he'd like to run off. He'd run up uh, up the street. The baby was in the buggy. He was crying. So I decided to put the baby in the house with dad and then went back out again. And there was no dog to be seen. And I walked up and down for a couple of hours, couldn't find him. Then a couple of days, couldn't find him. Uh, walked around everywhere I could think of, all the old haunts, got everybody to try and shout his name. No one could find him. Uh, and then I started putting posters up saying reward, etc., etc. And um, they, um, somebody had stolen him. <gasps> and I know, and responded for the, um, for the reward. And then I rang the police and said, um, somebody uh, has taken my dog and they're bringing him back now and I've promised to give them a reward. Um, and they said, sorry, we're too busy. I said, but this is dognap, this is kidnap, whatever you want to call it. But that, I, I was just pleased in the end that I got the dog back. How much was the reward? £500, so not very much, but, you know, 20 odd years ago, it was quite a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, how did you change over the money? They were very brazen. They came to the house. What? I know, and I gave them the money and I got the dog back. I mean, that's extraordinary. What were they like? Uh, I wanted to kill them, if I'm honest. But actually, I, I, it was sort of, you know, it was that emotion of thrilled that I got the dog back and desperate that these people had the audacity to take my dog in the first place and all of the anxieties that that had created. So when they knocked on the door, oh, my God, I can understand why you wanted to kill them. Yeah, yeah. And how did they steal him? Did they just, you know, 
give them some biscuits or something. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm guessing they just, I don't know, didn't go into the detail. I'm guessing they just, you know, he just followed them because um, they might have had a biscuit or something, you know, to entice them with. One does wonder, I think everybody would be wondering, what would my dog do in that situation if strangers came for them? Kevin yeah. Bridges was telling me that his beautiful dog, Annie, would probably, so long as somebody tickles her tummy, she'd probably roll over and say, right, his laptop's over there and his phone's through there and it says to you, have it. Yeah, exactly that. They wanted the money and off they went. I was surprised that the police didn't come, but they weren't interested. How interesting, huh? Really interesting. Uh, I just felt that they should have, um, you know, they should have had something to answer for. But at that stage, I was just happy. To just give him the brown envelope. Get yeah. your dog back. Yeah, exactly that. And he was, you know, as I said, he was very pleased. And my son, who was then little, was very pleased to see him as well. And we were sort of reunited. I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like. I often think about when we see stories about kids missing and their parents, you know, hoping against hope that they come back. And I think, you know, just a tight, I had a tiny taste of that when Fred was stolen for those four days. If you're a dog lover, only dog lovers realise just what that uh, wrenching, that heartache is until that animal comes back to you. I would have had to have taken drugs to calm me down. I had the baby with me. Oh. I would just walk for hours and hours across the fields, shouting out his name and hoping against hope that um, he would come back. It was just the worst experience. Um, but, you know, when that moment when I did open the front door and he was there, yeah bottle that one of the family if one of the dogs was kidnapped oh my god what would <laughs> no, we do stop. that's my biggest fear is it well a fight the microchips doesn't that work oh no you have to find the dogs to have that yeah. how would you feel i would hunt them it down would just be like i can't even imagine Kay's dog was taken and she paid a ransom of 500 pounds she put a poster up and she paid the ransom how much would we pay Everything. All we have. Would we sell the house? Would we go that far? I think we would. I would do everything in my power to get them back. Whatever it costs. Yeah, wouldn't you? Right back at you. Do you know what I mean? Would you sell the house? The estate where I live out in the country, uh, an Irish setter disappeared from the garden the other day and everybody, you know, it was a call to arms and everybody went out to look for the dog and two hours later she was found about five miles away, uh, where she'd run after a rabbit. We all had a you know, sigh of relief, and it took me back that 20-odd years, and all those emotions that I felt at the time. Thankfully, um, the dog came back, although it has got a stupid name. What's that? Poppy. Who calls their dog Poppy? <laughs> Seriously, you've got to have a proper name for a dog, haven't you? Yeah. Well, anyway, my two West Highland Terriers, uh, Misty and Poppy. None of them <laughs> One of the family. If I may, just for a few seconds, this is One of the Family. Please do subscribe. You can find us on Twitter at One of the Family One and also on the One of the Family YouTube channel, which has an array of treats. It's the podcast for people who love dogs and people who love people who love dogs. Isn't it odd when people come to your house who don't like dogs? Yeah. Uh, or don't understand dogs. I mean, all my dogs as friends, they, they love dogs because they've grown up around them and they have dogs and they have pets. And, uh, but when people come here and you, and you get that, it's something so alien to dog lovers when they go, oh, what's, 
Yeah. yeah. What is this yeah. thing? Strange. Yeah. yeah. So people say, can you put, if they come to the house and I don't know them, and say, oh, can you put the dog away? It's like, of course I can. No problem. But you're never coming back to my house ever again. <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever again. Enjoy my hospitality while you can. I love my uh, my two boys. You know, when I think about my previous dogs, it always brings a smile to my face. Pete Townsend's wife, Rachel Fuller, saw the image that I put up of Gordon when he passed, and she took a screen grab of it, put that image onto a cross-stitch cushion, spent two years re uh, replicating the image of Gordon's face, and I got it in the post a couple of weeks ago. We didn't know each other. She just did it. As Kay Burley. What a lovely gesture. Right, I've put this news theme together, so I've got to use it at least twice. Here we go. Studio standby, Tina Ritchie. Coming up, Ian Dale. He prizes the truth out of politicians, but what he really prizes are Dude and Bubba, his beloved dogs. And in Parliament, they say the nose have it. Well, the nose detects it. Medical detection dogs later. Ian Dale right now. So Dude, the Jack Russell and Bubba, the miniature schnauzer, living together in perfect harmony. Mostly. They've only ever had one fight and it was actually really upsetting because they'd never had one before. Um, we got them uh, within a week of each other and uh, so they were about six weeks old. They were puppies and we, I've got a video of the first time that they met and it, it's really quite sweet. And that, so they've grown up with each other. They've never experienced life without each other really or not that they can remember. And they've always doted on each other. One is the boss and one is much more intelligent than the other, but they always get on. And there was just one time when, um, I can't even remember what provoked it now, and they just went for it and we had to separate them. And that's the only time in nine years that they've done it. And I mean, I was really upset by it because I'd never seen them do it before. And of course you think, well, if they do it once, they could then do it again. Although actually they well, have It was proper, was it? The, the lips pulled back and the... The, the wolf teeth, the whole bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you see, Dude is a very untypical Jack Russell. He is the most docile dog you've ever met, the most loving dog you will ever meet. Um, he, he, he never growls. Um, he barks if the postman comes up the road, but if he ever encountered the postman, he'd lick him to death. He's not a biter, which, of course, people imagine Jack Russell's always are. So to see him like that, it, it was really quite weird. Um, Baba is also very docile, um, but he, he's, his jaw doesn't quite meet. So even if he tries to bite anything, he can't quite do it because the, <laughs> the bottom and the top of his jaw don't meet. But he, he, I mean, he was going for it as well. So, yeah, very upsetting. It's amazing when it spills over from that, you know, play fighting, play wrestling. It just, it just crosses the line. I've seen it a couple of times with our West Highland Terriers. We have a mother and a daughter. And like mothers and daughters in this house, occasionally there is a humdinger. You think, well, is this going to be par for the course now? Now that now they've, they didn't actually draw blood. Not like Andrew Neil. Before Dude and Bubba, Ian had Geo. Here is a beautiful story. We got Geo. Um, I'd only been with John for like two years at that point. And looking back, it was utter madness getting a dog after a relationship that was only two years old. Um, 
as as Anne Widdicombe said to me once, well, it's well known that gay relationships only last two years long. And I, I looked her in the face and I said, my experience is more like 20 minutes, which to her credit, she did laugh at. Um, so we got him from Battersea. And um, I was running Politico's bookshop in Westminster at that time. So we took him back to the bookshop, got a little box for him to sit in. He literally, you could hold him in the palm of your hand. He was about six weeks old. And the reason we actually went to get a fully grown dog because we thought, well, we can't, we need a dog that knows how to behave. Um, but there was nothing there that really grabbed us. All of the dogs seemed to have real issues. And then they said, well, come and look at the puppies. And we said, well, I don't, don't really want a puppy. And so we looked in this pen and there were about 20 of them in there. And there was this little face at the back. And as soon as it saw me, it ran towards me. And that was it. I mean, you know what it's like. You, you just sort of instantly connect with a dog. So we went back, I don't know how long later and collected him. And so that was in 1997. And he was a typical Jack Russell. He was quite, he could be a little bit vicious. Um, he didn't like children. He didn't like people on bicycles. But he could be a very loving dog, but he and he was very energetic, typical Jack Russell, just wanted to run around everywhere, um, loved to chase after a ball. And um, but one day he was racing around the house. He used to do circuits of the house. He'd have these sort of moments of hyper action, just run around around the house at sort of full pelt. And he jumped on the couch and then jumped off again. And you could tell that he'd done something to his leg. So we took him to the vet and he'd broken a ligament in his knee i'm not really sure whether dogs really have knees but it, that was what the, the vet said and he could never really run properly after that and he started to put on a lot of weight because we couldn't take him for the long walks that he used to go on and um he then got diabetes which often happens with dogs um and he got to the age of 14 it was in 2011 and he had had a couple of minor strokes and you, you could sort of tell that he wasn't going to last much longer. And I remember I had to go to Australia for three weeks and I rang the vet up and I said, look, I, I need to know, is, it, is he likely to last at least three weeks? And the vet said, well, I can't really say, but I think he probably will. And I said to John, I said, if he dies, you can't tell me. Which, um, in a way would have been a really awful thing to do but anyway the first thing i remember coming back at heathrow i said he's still still alive isn't he and, and he was and anyway about two weeks after that um god i'm even tearing up before i even tell the main story um two weeks after that i came home one day after doing my radio show and it was about um probably what, 11 o'clock at night, and I got to Tunbridge Station, and st instead of John picking me up, a friend of his was there to pick me up, and I said, well, why are you here? Oh, um, something's happened with Geo. So I got home, and um, he was basically, he'd ha he must have had a, a giant stroke. Um, he, w he was laying on the floor by the back door, and he was awake, but and he, he kind of clearly knew that we were there, but he was totally unresponsive. You could say anything to him, and, and there was just nothing. So the, the vet uh, came out, and he said, well, there's, there's absolutely nothing that I can do. Um, and so we said, well, do you want to put him to sleep? And he said, well, he will pass away overnight. 
and I, I can remember those sort of hours um and john's I mean, John basically kind of was, if you, if you want to put it in these terms, he was his kind of chief carer. And he said, you need to go to bed because you've got to work tomorrow. So I went to bed and... I can remember about five o'clock he came in and said it died. And he said, do you want to see him? And I said, no. And because I, I didn't want to remember him in that state um, he was a, a real character I mean Jack, Jack Russell's always are characters I think possibly more than most dogs uh. I'd only ever experienced death of a close relative when my, my, my grandmother died when I was 17 and I couldn't really remember much about that. Um, but I was a wreck. I mean, you can tell this is like nine years old and it's still very upsetting. Um, I couldn't go to work that day. Um, and we, we decided that we, it would kind of be insulting his memory if we got another dog. I know that sounds weird, but it, we just thought, no, it, do, it doesn't feel right. But after about six weeks, um, it, I think it was literally, we both came to this conclusion at the same time. Um, we said, well, let's get two dogs because the house just felt empty. Just didn't feel like home anymore without that little presence that was there, always pleased to see you, unconditional love that you get from a dog. Um, so we decided we would get two and um started on a on a search for them and um so that's how we ended up with, with dude and bubba one of the family well one of the family bria campbell is away and is really missing one of the family and wanted to say so on one of the family i miss maxwell so much when i'm at uni oh my days like all i want when i come back from the library you know i've had a hard day and I just want a hug, do you know what I mean? I miss his smell, I miss his, just his face, just that little look he gives you when you walk in the door. Oh God, it's really tough seeing other people walking their dogs because I just, it's like a big part of my life missing, to be honest. I know that feeling, I know you know that feeling. There's something else that, particularly at the moment, is making her miss him so much. I feel like he'd be a really, really great distraction from all the shit that's going on in the world right now. I mean, the loss of a dog, I, I remember when I was a child, we had, um, I mean, I lived on a farm and we had Jack Russells all through my childhood, but we had a Jack Russell and um, a Labrador called Sandy. And Sandy used to run off, but would come back. And then a few weeks later, he'd run off and we never knew where he went. And then there was one time, and I could only have been about nine or 10 years old, maybe even younger than that. And I remember my dad saying to me, he's come back to say, God, uh, he's, he's come back to say goodbye. We never saw him again. And we never could work out why he did that because he had a fantastic life on the farm. He must have got, found some other place uh, where um, 
he felt very welcome as well and just decided well i'm going to live there rather than there i i can't think of any other um reason but i mean it, dogs are such weird and wonderful beasts aren't they yeah, yeah. i mean dude for example is one of the most is the most intelligent dog i've ever seen he he literally understands you in a way that i've never seen in another dog and there was um i can't remember what caused me to be really unhappy one day but he instantly knew and he would come and i mean dude as, as he gets older he can't be becomes much more affectionate and he'll sometimes come and sit on your lap voluntarily which he would never have done until the last couple of years but he knew that i was really unhappy and i think it was actually it may have been when my dad died um and he came and just sort of licked my face in a way that in a way that he hadn't ever done before and he was just signaling to me I know there's something wrong and I want to try and help you. And I thought that, I mean, it was just one of those special moments. Ian Dale. And now for those special dogs. Dogs who help us so much. Medical detection dogs. Now the word amazing is overused. So let me put it this way. This is amazing. Our dogs and their incredible sense of smell. One of the family. What do you want? Did you know? What? A dog has 350 million sensory receptors. How many have we got? Humans have got five million, and this means a dog can detect parts of a trillion. Parts of a trillion? What does that mean? A teaspoon of sugar in the volume of water held in two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Makes the medicine go down. This is amazing. Claire Guest is chief executive of the charity Medical Detection Dogs. Dogs detecting disease by odour, cancer, neurological disease, malaria, bacterial infection, predicting seizures and COVID. If you know and love dogs, it makes perfect sense. Because they smell our fear. They smell our, they smell our love in our endorphins. Uh, Absolutely. You know, they know, they know how we're feeling from the sense of smell. So how did this start? medical detection you're absolutely right so for me i mean i was um started i'm a behavioral psychologist i love the um behavior of animals and the relationship between uh, ourselves and, and and dogs in particular and i was working for a, a charity and um i was told a story uh, about a friend a colleague uh, came in and told me that her dog had a uh, pet dog persistently sniffed a mole on her calf. Now she was a young lady; she was in her in her late teens, early twenties, and this dog had had constantly sniffed at this mole to the point she said it was really irritating. She said I used to come at home and I'd have trousers on or boots on. So the dog would come and say hello, and his nose would start to twitch and it would start to find this mole on my calf. And she said it wouldn't leave it. She said I had pushing the dog away and it kept coming back. Eventually, she went to her GP. Her GP wasn't concerned, but said, okay, well, let's get rid of this mole. And it was um, removed, um, and she was recalled to be told she had malignant melanoma. Almost certainly would have been, um, you know, life-threatening in a girl of her age without any question. And, you know, she, she said to me, this dog was sniffing the air, and I asked lots of questions. No, it was sniffing, definitely sniffing. And... Many years after she told me this story, um, I heard a Dr. John Church talk on, on Radio 4, actually, and he was, he's fondly known as the maggot man. He was the man that reintroduced the use, use of maggots into wound cleaning. 
Mm. And he was being questioned and asked whether he thought there were any other ways in which animals might be able to, you know, help us with our human health. And he said he said he did. He said, I've heard anecdotes of dogs being able to detect cancer. I've written a letter to the uh, Lancet Medical Journal. And if anybody out there can train a dog and believes me, please get in touch. I did. And to cut a long story short, we published the first robust study, um, which was published in the British Medical Journal in September 2004, that indicated dogs could indeed be trained to find the odour of cancer. And then after some time, we co-founded the charity Medical Detection Dogs and were actually sort of formally up and running in 2008. From that time on, we have, of course, made huge discoveries about other diseases that dogs can very reliably detect. Have you got any idea what cancer smells like? I haven't, no. Um, some other diseases that we now work with, I think I do pick up on. And in fact, living, working in a world of smell, I think I've got a bit super sensitive to smells, which actually isn't always, <laughs> isn't always a good thing. Um, but um, a lot of smells are described, lots of disease smells are described as musty or decaying or, um, but they all have a sort of unique, I mean, John Church said he could smell typhoid many years ago when he was a medic. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't new. And we all know, you know, somebody, a diabetic in high blood sugars will smell of pear drops, you know, so we are aware of some odours of disease. It's incredible, isn't it? Just to tell you that research into COVID-19 is progressing really well and the results of the trials should be out imminently. So watch out for that. More from Claire coming right now. Currently, you know, there's no technology, for example, somebody who has the condition POTS, um, which is a sudden unconscious episode that can occur 10, 15 times a day. No warning at all. Um, there's no technology at the moment that can warn that person. So they crash to the floor, break bones, hit other people, damage themselves. And, you know, it's a horrible, horrible condition it means that they have to um, use a wheelchair. Now the dogs can detect it three to five minutes beforehand with almost hundred percent reliability. It's incredible. And you know what? It's quite, what's the word? Um, when you witness an alert, we had one yesterday from left because we had a, a, a member of, uh, we had a, um, one of our clients on site. So people, you know, obviously socially distancing, but buzzing about um, and all of a sudden the dog goes still and stares straight at this girl and this particular dog's alerts the stare. And um, she said immediately, I'm going to have an episode. Just had long enough to sit down, make herself safe um and then this girl sadly went into a full-blown seizure but it it's quite incredible how these dogs are able to do it and um in a situation where us humans are completely in the dark literally no idea it's gonna happen did the dog realize something was wrong the dog yeah the dog's trained so what we did is we in the early days, when we selected this dog for this, this, this lady, what we did is we collected odour from her. Or we asked her, 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 her family to collect odour from her when she'd had a collapse. So what we were able to do is collect odour from her, put them in pots, and the dog was then trained on this odour. So this dog knows this is an odour we wanted, want, wanted to recognise. And actually for the dog, we make it very rewarding. So we say, hey, you tell us this odour's here, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll reward you for it. 
and that's basically how it works and that way of course you increase the behavior the dog gets more and more confident and the dog gets more persistent because what the dog says is if you don't take notice of, of me when i'm telling you the soda's here i'll come back and tell you again because you haven't treated me so it actually works really instinctively you know that the whole thing works really really well neurological diseases such as parkinson's where are we with that what we've discovered is that dogs can reliably detect um individuals who have early Parkinson's symptoms before they have any medication from a piece of cloth that's wiped on the back of the back of the neck with over 85% reliability. Now, not, you know, now this is not surprising to us, you know, when you have Parkinson's disease, you have a complete change in neurotransmitters, you know, your dopamine levels are being affected, this is affecting other things. And actually it was somebody in the 18th or 19th century that wrote that people with Parkinson's disease seem to have a different their skin became greasier so that, that the semen on the skin was changing and that immediately said to me there's going to be an odor here because you know you're changing the um, microbiome and this is a you know big of in, big interest now the bacteria that live on our healthy skin surface and actually inside our bodies as well whenever we get changes the microbiome changes so you know I was pretty sure we, could, we would get an odor and we have mm. My belief is that if you know early, even if you were to know 20 or 30 years beforehand, and this is the sort of time that we think people start Parkinson's disease 20 or 30 years before, you could change. There may well be things you can change, lifestyle, you know, and, and other things that you can do in order to reduce the effect of Parkinson's rather than be told, I'm afraid the damage is too late. We're really lucky. We're able to use a lot of unwanted dogs because, you know, these tend to, dogs tend to end up in rescue because they're a bit too boisterous and um, too much of their owners. So we have a complete no kennel policy. It was absolutely imperative when we started the charity. We wanted all our dogs to live normal, happy lives when they're not doing, you know, doing their job. And um, so they come into the training centre in the morning and we have wonderful fosterers, volunteer fosterers all around the county that take the dogs home in the evening and they have a normal dog evening and sit on the sofa mm. in fact you know i've got a little dog asher who's by my feet here who's one of the covid dogs and he had seven homes before i had him and he had a, a you know a number of behavior problems um some of which i think would have resulted i'm afraid in, in in a short life because he'd started to react very badly to a number of things and all he wanted really i mean there were some other complications but all he really wanted was a job to do just wants to, to be asked to do something and, and focus on it he was um he just loves to work um and um you know spining odors for him is just his dream come true asha asha come up here a second it's very hot asha come here come up here so yeah so he was doing lots of things he was he was running away he was biting what else were you doing you were doing quite a lot he said life took a better turn he says he says life took a much better turn so he says what i do now is i sniff sniff several hours a day and then i come home and put my feet up do you not get worried when i should start sniffing well now there's a story there now so i was um charity started in 2008 but as i said i started working in 2002 with this publication and I had one of the dogs living with me that I did the first study with called Tangle, who's a spaniel. And I had um, a beautiful dog called Daisy. And Daisy was a young, she was eight weeks old when I got her. She's a fox red Labrador. Um, 
and she was working on prostate cancer. She was the dog um, that told me that actually a dog that's trained on bladder cancer can then go on to be trained to detect prostate cancer with very little further training. Now that's very interesting because what it means is that cancer itself must have a generic odor that is slightly changed due to the organ it's in, but actually still has a cancery odor, if you like. And um, she started to become a bit, she was very, very, she had great big eyes and she started to become a little bit wary of me. She looked a bit sort of like an upsetter. And I kept saying, what's the matter, Daisy? What's the matter? And she just sort of looked, you know. And so anyway, I took her one day for a, a walk and I opened the back of the car up. I had two other dogs with me. I said, hop out, everybody. They hopped out for a walk to jump out to play. Daisy wouldn't. She just kept on staring and nudging at me and staring and nudging at me. So I said, Daisy, off you go. And um, she eventually did. But as I was walking around with them, I sort of felt where she'd been nudging. I thought, oh, I think I can feel a lump. I was diagnosed with a very early very very deep-seated breast cancer um, which my um, clinician who was very skeptical at first um, who's now a uh, trustee of the charity said that had Daisy not drawn my attention to it um, my prognosis would have been very different because I was uh, young relatively young five years from a mammogram and it was so deep-seated that by the time I'd felt and been aware of a lump myself it probably would have spread much more so that re-inspired me. And I'm not suggesting at all that everybody should go out and be worried sick every time a dog sniffs them, because as we've already said, sniffing is the way in which dogs communicate. But I think increasingly people who have very good relationships, very close relationships with their dogs, you know, if they do suddenly notice a complete change of behavior that seems to be caused by you or something on you, you know, it's worth listening. Mm. As a behaviorist, I've spent many years looking at what was always considered to be abnormal canine behavior and how we can sort of um, assist. And, you know, you do wonder looking back how many dogs were actually saying that there was something they were concerned about in their owners, but we just didn't have the understanding then to know what was going on. When Daisy went to a better place, that must've been a sad day for you, given that she saved your life. It was horrific. You, I mean, you build yourself up for these things and, you know, as a dog lovers all know it's the day you dread, but I had, you have sort of an imaginings of how, how it will be for them. And she was um, 13 and a half. She was still running with me. She, she couldn't run 5K, but she was still happily running 2, 3K with me. And she became ill for a couple of days, literally. And um, I suddenly found a very large lump on her. She was uh, taken straight to a specialist hospital because of how, you know, how um, important she was. And... Um, they um, found that she had very, very advanced cancer. Um, and I opted to have chemotherapy for her, which is uh, very successful normally in dogs. Um, and not they don't suffer from the side effects humans often do. And unfortunately, um, chemotherapy made her incredibly unwell. So I had to make the decision within about 36 hours. And it was the most awful thing to do. Claire Guest talking about medical detection dogs and Daisy. Did she sense her own illness, Daisy? Did she understand her own mortality? Big questions. Thanks for listening to One of the Family.